Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Good to be here, guys. Yeah. yeah I. Uh, uh, it occurred to me, you know, we gave we gave our requisite uh, bachelor update about mm-hmm. the fact that there was a, a lawyer on the show, and we haven't revisited yet. Uh, Amber, you don't watch. I don't, so I actually- Bill and I watch. I sort of love hearing you guys talk about it, so I'm happy to get an update on, on how the lawyer is doing. And I'm always happy to talk about- my lady Kelly. Yeah. She's on my Bachelor fantasy team. Oh, wow. So, so you got a lot of skin in the game. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. want to do a quick one minute on Kelly here and just like to Kelly on The Bachelor? I mean, everyone sort of, we, well, we talked about it the last time. I mean, she's an attorney. Yeah. Uh, and tax uh, attorney. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you, she's, well, she's, we're going to, I don't want to get into a whole thing, but like a lot of the women on the show, like th- there's a lot of drama and chaos, even for this show. Oh, yes. And yes. Kelly is sort of standing above the freight. Like, Seems you, like a normal person. First of all, she's quite a bit, I don't want to be reverse ageist or anything. She, she, she's quite a bit older than the contestant right. pool. And frankly, it shows. Yeah. And she was, she was on a date with Peter on Monday where Peter's objection was basically like, why aren't you more obsessed with me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why don't you, like everyone else is very emotional and doting on me. Yeah, and- there's there's something sort of uh, Orwellian about the way that people <laughs> speak on that show. And yeah. she just seems like a normal person Relatively being like normal. dropped into it. No one's um, fully normal because they went on a reality show, but like by the metric of, right. of that. Right. So yeah, I don't know. Seems, well, yeah. This does make me want to watch it, yeah. I will say. It's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a strong, it's a fine program. Uh, we're pulling for right. her because we're pulling for you in, yeah. your, in your league, and she's the last. She's the last woman standing on your team, is she not? She is. Yeah. Well. So I I appreciate the the thoughts and the prayers from the group. Well, we'll see how that goes. We will. Uh, we have a good show today. Yeah, we um, have one. Oh, of my... did, did you ask us? Yeah. I mean, I I, I think so. Yes. <laughs> he he asked because Alex and I are the ones that did a great interview today. We talked to Vin Guerrero, who's a returning favorite guest of ours. Always great to have Vin. He's our senior employment reporter, and he's coming on to talk about the coronavirus and how employment Employers can respond, but not go too far and find themselves in some other legal trouble. So it's a good talk. Yeah. Um, always love chatting with Vin, as I said. Um, but before we get to that, we do have some news. Uh, I wanted to check in on uh, the pending court battle over the federal government's use of PACER fees. These mm-hmm. are the electronic, f- these are the fees that they charge you 10 cents a page to, to watch access. Indiana Pacers <laughs> games. Uh, yeah. I mean, that that would be that would be an over uh, overcharge for the Pacers. Um, but yeah, no. So... Uh, these are the fees that you pay to access court documents. There is a lawsuit. We've talked about this once on the show uh, a while ago, um, and it's turned into this sort of flashpoint for advocates who, you know, want the court, you know, uh, system to be more accessible and transparent. Uh, and uh, there was a heated moment this week. Uh, the federal circuit, which is hearing uh, the appeal now in this case, really, really laid into a DOJ attorney who was you know, sort of struggling to answer questions about mm-hmm. how the government spends this money that they collect from these fees. Well, I feel like here at Law360, we know all about PACER <laughs> yes. access and charges. It's an entire um, business model <laughs> built yeah. on it. Yeah, we spend a lot of time on PACER. But um, let's reset a little for people that maybe sure. haven't followed along. Why is this such a contentious issue? Yeah, so PACER, as, 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 as the law heads uh, certainly know, is public access to court electronic records. Uh, and like I said, it's 10 cents a page. Um, and this uh, was seized This was seized upon. There was a class action brought by a bunch of transparency sort of advocacy groups that basically said that this is entirely out of whack. They say that there's, that there's this e-government law on the books that requires the government to charge only what is needed to specifically run the website itself. Mm-hmm. The government, on the other hand, says that they have 
a little more room. They say that they can use that money for anything that sort of helps the judiciary function more smoothly. Um, and that may sound like splitting hairs, but it, it gets to be uh, quite a bit more complicated. So it, uh, a D.C. federal judge uh, in 2018 basically split the baby uh, and basically said, OK, you, the advocates, it's probably not true to say that they can only literally spend it on the PACER website itself. But then they also turned around. The, the judge also said the government has probably uh, misallocated about $200 million worth of PACER fees. That's a lot. On things like upgrading and maintenance of the court's like audiovisual technology. That's yeah. where the most of this money went. Uh, such And also um, electronic systems for like juror management and like victim notifications, things like that. The government is basically saying, you know, Anything that, you know, improves, like, the way that the, the, that ju- that the judiciary functions is proper use of this fee. Um, and, of course, these, these advocates feel differently. Um, but in any case, uh, there are a lot of subtle distinctions, and now we're, and now we're up on appeal. Uh, it's at the Yes, yeah, so circuit. what is the government saying on their side of this appeal? Yeah, I mean, both sides have, both sides have appealed, because, as I said, it was sort of a split ruling. But mm-hmm. we're going to just talk about the, the government. And they basically have said that PACER users, beyond what they're even allowed to spend the fees, they are now arguing in, in, uh, in the appeals court that, the, that PACER users sort of as a class are not entitled to judicial relief under mm-hmm. the law at all. They are saying that, you know, they, that this, this, you know, this is something that, you know, Congress appropriates this money, the judiciary, the, the judicial conference, which is the sort of policymaking body of the federal judiciary, basically says, uh, you know, sets sets the guidelines for how the money is spent. And that is sort of the extent of it. Um, and this really threw the government, this really threw uh, the panel for a loop that was hearing the case. The, uh, the government's attorney, uh, Alyssa Klein, she sort of uh, was trying to make her position and she ran into some uh, some difficulty when uh, Circuit Judge Raymond Clevenger began to sort of uh, tease out this legal theory with some hypotheticals. Let's assume that the judicial conference says, you know, guess what? They, this is a great argument. We can charge everything we want for the fee. It has nothing to relate to anything. It has nothing, has no relationship at all to the cost of, of supplying things electronically. We're going to charge for the curtains at the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice's new chair and all the rest. Stick it in the fee. And we told the whole world we're doing that. We're redecorating all judges' offices with gold plate. And they do it. And they put it on the front page of the post. And there's absolutely no remedy. It's not that there's no oversight. There's by no sta- rem- so I'm just telling you that's what your position is. No, Your Honor, by statute, that the fee schedule, when it's changed, has to go to Congress in advance. Congress every— So you see there, I mean, that's that, that's a pretty good, I, I think, illustration of, of where they're at loggerheads a little. Well, yeah. isn't that, I mean, that's so many cases, right, where the, it's like, you know— who is the person that should answer this question? Is it the courts or is it yeah. Congress? Should- yeah, and I mean, and he's teasing it out to maybe, and I mean, he's saying sort of, uh, you know, d- you know, putting new curtains in the Supreme Court, and she's not really answering it directly. She's saying that you know, Congress gives us this money, and it's very delineated for these purposes, um, or, or Congress sort of sets the law where, they, where you know where these fees you know you know derive from, and so you know that's that's sort of where they're where they're at an impasse. But a lot of what we talked about before we did this was that. Um, uh, this hearing got a little heated at one point. Yeah. Um, so uh, Clevenger, at one point, uh, in asking the question, described the current P- 
pacer fee system and the way the money is spent as blatantly illegal. He said that in wow. like the framing of a question. So we have a pretty good idea of where he is at on this issue. Um, but a little bit later in the hearing um, or in the arguments, uh, he wasn't done uh, presenting the government with hypotheticals. Let me ask you this question on the merits, just to sort of test where you are. You know that the Supreme Court has a cafeteria. It's a very, not a bad place to eat, although Justice Gorsuch doesn't like the pizza now. So let's assume that Pacer, on Pacer now, you can hook into Pacer and you can get the menu, current menu for the Supreme Court's cafeteria. And the Judicial Conference decides that the cost of building up that electronic information should be passed on to Pacer users because it's available electronically. Would it be appropriate to have that cost in the fee, yes or no? The Judicial Conference has limited... Yes or no on my hypothetical. Again... The cost of the menu, preparing the menu for the Supreme Court. Is that or is that not an appropriate Pacer fee cost? We're not saying the Judicial Conference would ever do this. I'm asking but the you, statute you, says... You trouble for, answering, do you have a lot of trouble answering questions? The statute... in life or just when you come in front of the court? The, the statute says... Wow. Oh, my. How, what I'm asking you is if I was ordering from the court cafeteria <laughs> on Grubhub, would it be delivered within 30 minutes? He, I need to know. He actually, late, I, we didn't play this. He actually does talk, he, he kind of loses the thread on the question a little bit later. He does talk about, well, what if we wanted to have an ordering service from the Supreme Court? That could, if, could we spend money on that? Uh, so, yeah, um, uh, pretty interesting there. I try to figure out if I would. I would certainly click on if they made the uh, the menu available. Like I think that as, oh, just as, me a, too. as a morbid curiosity it has nothing to do with the, whether the fees are justified. Uh, but in any case, uh, you kind of get a sense of how it was going in the room. Um, but uh, and as I said, the case has drawn a lot of attention because you know we're we're cracking jokes here, but it is a serious thing for the people who are bringing this case who want to sort of make it easier for people to access court filings in a very you know easy fashion. Um, well, it's, I, a, it's a huge deal. I mean, yeah, we yeah, use yeah. we use Pacer all day, but but those fees really are a um, you know they're a they're a paywall for for a huge number of people to access it if you're a small journalism outlet or you're a student or whatever it's very difficult to get access to court records without a doubt um, so we have I, I think I mean I don't like to prognosticate too much I think we know how judge Clevenger feels we'll have to wait and see uh, where the rest of the panel comes down guys before we get to our next segment I just wanted to tell you about Harry's razors huh? You know, I use Harry's razors. Sorry, I just want to start in here. We're, it's actually a news story about Harry's razors. Everyone's like, why are these guys doing ads now? What the hell's going on? <laughs> it sounded so professional. <laughs> Thank that you. It was great, Bill. I appreciate it's that. It's like you listen to podcasts a lot or something. Um, so Harry's razors, a razor startup, a, uh, an often... Uh, a fixture uh, on the podcast exactly. ad yeah, circle. Exactly. Yes. Uh, they <laughs> want to sell themselves to Schick for $1.37 billion. Um, that is so much money for a razor company. I yeah. never have a good feel for that stuff, but yes. Okay, so they're trying to sell the shick. But <laughs> the Federal Trade Commission sued this week to stop the deal from happening. Um, they see all sorts of problems with uh, with removing Harry's from the market, that they were this disruptive force, and they don't want to go back to the way that things were. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, you know, like like a lot of services that popped up, it was just like there were, there were sort of titans, you know, yeah. giants of certain corners of the industry, and shaving was one of them. Like I said, this was a welcome thing. Tell us more about how, uh, how how this bubbled up and what we've got on our hands now. Well, you alluded to other services, and this is sort of a repeating 
pattern. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not tech companies, but they're sort of in that. They're sort of a. a well, every company's a tech company now. Exactly. So I don't know if you've heard that. Um, but, yes. but so Harry's was founded in 2012. It's yeah. a subscription-based service that um, they mail you razors and other shaving products. Um, and it's it's like Warby Parker with glasses sure. or with Casper with mattresses. Um, we could just go into more ads here on the podcast. I also feel um, like you're just, you're also just naming a lot of stuff where as soon as you said Warby Park, I was like, oh, you mean the things on my face yeah, right yeah, now? Yeah. Uh, but so the idea is for all of them is to cut out the middlemen and sell cheaper products in, um, you know, like Alex said, a market that was long sort of stagnant with these entrenched, uh, you know, maybe monopolists or duopolists. Yeah. Um, so, and since 2016, um, Harry's has continued to get bigger. They're, they've, they're now in retail stores. And they signed a deal with Target. They signed yeah. a deal with Walmart. So they're growing and growing as a competitor in the market. Um, uh, that market, like I said, has long been dominated by Procter & Gamble, which makes Gillette, and Edgewell Personal Care, which makes Schick. Um, Gillette's much bigger, but um, the two companies combined for nearly 70% of the market. Yeah, um, Schick focused on the lower end of that market. I think they control between 15 and 20%, but they focused on the lower um, tier end of that market. And unsurprisingly, that end of the of the market has been harder hit by these online sort of cheap razor services and, yeah. and mail order things. Which makes sense why they then want to gobble one up into a combination. There. Exactly, which is what they did. And uh, last May, the company announced that it would purchase Harry's for $1.37 billion dollars. Yeah, um, but uh, as often happens, there are government regulators that have things to say about uh, mergers of this type or, or, ac- or acquisitions of this type. Yeah, on Monday, the FTC, um, it's theoretically not a lawsuit. It's its like an administrative action, sure. but it empowers them to sue if they can't stop it this way. Um, they sued to block the merger from going through. Um, the thrust of the complaint is that the old situation that I just described where there's these two giant companies that don't really have much in the way of competition kind of sucked for for the consumer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was like a bad situation for a long time and there's really no need to allow the market to go back to that. Yeah. Um, the, the FTC described the old situation as, quote, a comfortable duopoly characterized by annual price increases that were not driven by changes in costs or demand. I sort of love that when we're talking about a duopoly here, it's such a classic product as a, a shaver. I think yeah. that's because when, when you think of monopolies, you think of like these big old timey like titans yeah. of industry dominating a market, and this is that. Yeah, right. Um, no, it's 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 you know it makes sense that it would be the those sort of like staple goods that have been around for mm-hmm. for a really long time would have sort of moved in that direction. Um, I thought there was a good quote from the FTC when they announced this uh, quote. Harry's is a uniquely disruptive competitor in the wet shave market, and it has forced its rivals to offer lower prices and more options to consumers across the country. Edgewell's effort to short-circuit competition by buying up its new rival promises serious harm to consumers. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, you, they, they sort of lay it all out there. I mean, it's just they, 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 they were, <laughs> they of course were happy when new people entered the market. Right, of course. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's an interesting part of a bigger thing. I think we and many other people in the, you know, in the media talk about the Trump administration's efforts to roll back regulation in all sorts of different fronts. And we've talked about it on this show quite a bit. Um, but but scrutiny of, of mergers and acquisitions is is sort of an area where the, that trend is sort of bucked. Um, uh, the DOJ very famously tried, they, although they failed, um, to block AT&T's 
$108 billion acquisition of, of Time Warner. Yeah. Um, the FTC required really, really big divestments before approving Bristol-Myers Squibb's uh, $74 billion deal to buy Celgene. Um, it, it, you know, we I think we talked about it specifically on the show the um, when um, President Trump invoked uh, national security concerns to block Broadcom yeah. from, from acquiring Qualcomm. Yeah. So, you know, there are many examples of, uh, as we've seen these, um, you know, EPA rules and yeah. securities rules and all sorts of other stuff sort of fall during the last f- four years, that antitrust scrutiny of these big mergers um, it hasn't gotten the same treatment. virus is ravaging central China and stoking fears around the world about a dangerous outbreak. Concerned employers in the United States have started to put preventative measures in place, but could their well-intentioned actions leave them on shaky legal ground? Here to walk us through it is senior employment reporter Vin Guerrieri. Welcome back to the show, Vin. How are you doing, guys? We're doing great. How are you doing? I am doing pretty well. It's very cool to have a guy from Brooklyn ask you how you're doing. I just want to say that. <laughs> you know, you never leave the opportunity to make a Brooklyn reference I know, on I the know. show. Yeah. Um, but we're going to start in a different part of the world with our segment today. People are really worried about this coronavirus, and now employers are worried about it, too. Can you just sort of give us the the sense of how things are going with this outbreak and what has employers so worried? Right. So the outbreak started sometime around New Year's in central China, which is uh, approximately 20,000 miles away from Brooklyn, give or take. <laughs> right. Um, so... It's a flu-like virus, flu-like symptoms, so it's not too different from what you might see from a common cold or a common, you know, you get sick in the wintertime. Sure. And just a, you know, a really bad case of the the heebie-jeebies, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, So far, most of the cases have been concentrated in China. It's about 25,000 confirmed cases, and Mm. all but a few hundred have been actually in China, but the ones that have made it out of there gotten to a lot of different places. I think there's something about two dozen different countries that have confirmed cases so far. In the U.S., there's something about, uh, I believe there's about 12 as of today, 11 or 12. We're recording on Thursday. Um, That obviously changes by the day a little bit. And there's a few dozen more that the CDC is investigating. Yeah, and it's a serious thing. You know, I mean, I think there's something like, again, mostly in China, I think like something like 500 people have died from this. Uh, and right. sort of, you don't want to sort of downplay this, but we are a legal podcast. And sort of we're having you on to talk about some of the ramifications um, for employers. I mean, there are certainly, you know, steps that people are wanting to take regarding making sure that, you know, if people are traveling internationally, they don't want this sort of, they want to make sure that the their workplaces are safe. But there is a balance to strike there. This is sort of what your piece was about you wrote for us last week. Can you just talk about the sort of general picture there? Sure. So generally, employers are obligated to maintain a safe work environment, keep their workers free from hazards, free from things like that. If you speak to a lot of employment lawyers and people who follow these things, don't panic. There's no reason for employers domestically to panic yet because it's not really any sort of epidemic. There's only a dozen cases that spread out over a lot of different places. But employers are still kind of planning ahead. They don't want to be caught napping on this because if they do, all of a sudden they risk having some sort of epidemic breakout in their workplace. Epidemic might not be the right word. That's sort of a term of art. But 
they don't want you know large segments of their workforce suddenly falling sick to a uh, uh, what appears to be a very serious illness. And they actually were out in front of health officials in a lot of ways. Health officials only recently have started kind of uh, ringing alarms on this. Yeah. And I think the State Department is up to a level four. They're advising not mm-hmm. to travel to China anymore. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that what you're saying sounds pretty intuitive to a lot of people that, you know, if you're an employer worried about it and you have this um, this obligation to keep your workers safe, you should do what it takes to make sure that if the coronavirus does spread more in the U.S., that you're keeping that out of your workplace. But it's a little more tricky than that, right? There can be entanglements with going too far when you try to be preventative. And specifically, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, that's what's it. There are a couple of different laws that could come into effect if employers go a little too far in taking precautions. The ADA is the big one. Um, For example, if you have a worker who is traveling to China, that's one of the bigger uh, bigger problems that employers are facing, what to do with overseas travel sure. to yeah. affected areas. And if you have a worker that's going to China, what a lot of companies have done is just eliminate that sort of overseas travel altogether. Yeah, you just say you don't, you better don't take safe, those flights anymore. Yeah, Better safe than sorry. Uh-huh. Um, but in some cases, if that travel can't be avoided, now you get into a situation where if there's a worker who has some sort of underlying health condition that could leave them more susceptible to getting sick in an area where there's an outbreak happening and an employer tells them, no, you have to go. You have to go on this business trip. Yeah, That's where employers are kind of playing with fire a little bit as to whether they're violating the ADA by making the worker go. Let's think about that from the other perspective, because you said this just started to sort of crop up right around the new year. If there have been workers, employees, if there's an if a, if a, if a company has an office that's in China, for example, and they're coming back to the United States, um, you know, are they are they allowed to just say, hey, you know, don't come into the office? You know, there's like I know there's like a sort of a two week gestational period. I mean, how is that sort of police and how are they like what, what are some of the. The entanglement. Yeah, there. so they can do that. Um, yeah. If uh, so, it's about a two-week incubation period. Right. That's yeah. What health officials are saying, at least that's what they think. Um, if an employer wants to tell a worker, okay, um, don't come into work for two weeks, they're completely allowed to do that. It could be a work-from-home situation if you have, you know, an office-type environment. It's a little bit easier. Gets to be a little more difficult if you're dealing with like a worker who, for example, works on a production line sure. or a waiter or a hotel concierge. There could be a lot of different examples where you can't work from home. And in that case, uh, employers have to be a little bit more careful, again, to make sure that if there are any symptoms, if there's anyone who is potentially even exposed to whatever the virus was, that they had that off before it impacts the workplace in any significant way. And is there any other concern around the work from home option for somebody coming back from China? Because um, I know employers spend a lot of time um, trying to have a sort of a clear precedent about who can work from home and who can't. So would they be setting themselves up for other workers that have traveled overseas for any number of outbreaks that are maybe less serious than coronavirus to say like, well, I should definitely work from home now for a few weeks. Yeah, that's actually one of the easier things that an employer can do. Um, The EEOC, I think about 10 years ago or so when there was the H1N1 virus issued guidance on this. And they said working from home is okay. But like you said, there are some little variables in there. Um, One of them is if you give your worker an accommodation at work, you have to give them the same accommodation at home if it still applies. And another big issue with working from home is 
employers want to they want to track it. They want to have paperwork for it because if they don't typically allow workers to work from home, then it could be six months after whatever the outbreak is, whenever the whole thing blows over, that a worker says, "Oh, you know, you let John work from home six months ago right. during the uh, during the coronavirus scare. Why can't you let me work from home now?" So a lot of employment lawyers or such and such are advising that it's probably a good idea to keep good meticulous logs of why people are being allowed to work from home. Yeah, to basically prove like this was a really weird circumstance. It wasn't maybe a standard practice. Yeah, like yeah. a one-off situation, unique circumstances, that sort of thing. That way someone doesn't down the line say, oh, you know, you're, you're discriminating against me against the ADA because you're not letting me work from home when you let someone else work from home months ago. What about in a situation where if a company believes that a worker or some of its workers who have maybe traveled through China, they it, if they believe them to sort of be at risk and they and they want or, or, or that they may be infected, I mean, I don't I don't susp- I don't suppose they can sort of direct them to go like go to the doctor and get a diagnosis. I mean, what is the sort of interplay there? Yeah, that's that that can be really tricky. And again, you're dealing with a lot of different aspects of the ADA. Yeah, you're dealing with that because you began with it with this about saying the obligation for a safe and healthy workplace, and so yeah. right. That actually might be a little bit less of an issue going forward because now the the federal government is doing a lot of screenings in airports. They're okay. doing enhanced screenings mm, themselves. Sure. So it may not be as big of an issue for for employers to have to ask for those things. But if it does come up, it's it's tricky because employers can't usually ask for any employee to go take a medical test. That's yeah. usually uh, out of bounds. That's not something that the ADA allows. But – there are certain exceptions, and the big one in this case is if there's a direct threat to the workplace, a direct threat through, to right. health in the workplace. Now, what direct threat means, sure. that can that's where there's a little bit of a gray area. The EEOC, they've issued guidance. They say that direct threat is sort of somewhat tied to the seriousness of the illness, mm-hmm. and that's defined as it kind of goes with what health officials say. Mm-hmm. So depending on how seriously the... CDC takes it, how seriously the uh, Health and Human Services Department takes it. That's sort of an objective way that employers can look at the issue to to determine if it is enough of a direct threat to ask employees to take some sort of medical screening or get a doctor, just give them like a little doctor's note to clear them to go back to work. But it can be a little bit tricky for employers because you don't know ahead of time if whatever health officials are saying is enough to clear that legal bar. I think a lot of what's going on right now in the U.S. Um, has to do more with fear than a lot of actual cases here. Yeah. It's a really limited number, but it's in the news so much. And I think a lot of workers are concerned about what's coming through their open office plans and other sort of high risk areas. So what can employers do to reassure their employees? If somebody has just come back from a trip to China, can somebody in HR say, oh, we know John got cleared at the airport. Can can they just say that to other employees? Are there any risks there? I mean, you can say that, but you're taking a chance of getting sued if you do say that. Um, generally speaking, employers, if someone goes into HR and they say, hey, you know, I don't want to work next to somebody who is just in, in China, right. you know, um, employers generally should be as vague as possible in those situations. You don't want to give up any medical information about any specific person that bringing in a whole different slew of laws that mm. that employers may not, you know, they may not want to. Yeah, there's lots of privacy concerns, I would right. imagine. 
So generally speaking, you know, uh, employers can say things like we're aware of the situation where, you know, we have a policy in place where uh, we're taking precautions to make sure that everyone is safe, healthy and happy. Some of the precautions that you have already talked about right. here that we've talked about before, if someone comes to them with this concern. You just yeah. want to be careful about not actually uh, speaking about specific situations or specific That makes people. sense. Uh, you referenced there have been, this of course isn't the first sort of you know foreign originating airborne disease scare. You mentioned the H1N1 flu. There was SARS like a decade or so ago. And even in the absence of a glut of U.S. You know, instances of this, one of the big optical things that you, of course, see to start to take root is the uh, people wearing face masks. Um, you've seen, I've seen it around New York City already. I mean, yeah, you see I've it seen it on subway trains a bunch. And, you know, um, this is just something, you know, people read about it in the news. This is a step that they feel they want to take no matter how, you know, appropriate it is. Now, when you're working in, you know, especially if you work in something like customer service or something, you 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 met you mentioned this at the beginning about the types of jobs who can't work from home. If you work in like a hotel or you work at Target or you work, you know, in some other kind of, you know, customer facing thing, basically, like, are you allowed to just wear such a mask at work if you deem it, you know, a personal safety measure you're taking for yourself? Can the employer say, "Hey, you're kind of making us look like we're contaminated here"? What's the deal with that? Yeah, those are pretty common. I see them on the subway yeah. all the time. Um, interesting, actually, the CDC for this one is recommending not for people to wear face masks. Oh, so okay. You mentioned before about fear and just general yeah. uh, apprehension among people. I think that's a good example of it. If someone wants to wear a face mask at work, I mean, an employer has a lot of leeway to be able to say you can't do that for any number of different reasons, for uh, branding purposes, for the way that customers interface with their representatives, representative right. of their company. Um, any individual employee, a employer is pretty safe in saying that, you know, the CDC says no face masks are required. They're not recommended. So we we don't agree with you wearing one. We don't want you to wear one. The only area where employers could get into a little bit of a jam is dealing with labor law. If yeah. there's a big group of employees that potentially go to an employer and say we want to wear masks, that could be argued to be the sort of concerted activity that labor law protects. Mm -hmm. And, you know, employers can, I guess, theoretically still deny the request, although there's a little bit more risk if you're dealing with multiple employees as opposed to just one that might have some sort of concern. Yeah, you got to decide whether or not you want to pick that fight. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. So, Vin, sum us up. There's a lot of fear about this. People are clearly talking about coronavirus all the time. What should be the big takeaways for employers to be able to protect their workers but not go too far? Take precautions, have a plan in place, but don't panic and make sure that workers aren't getting too, uh, too fearful of what might happen. Good advice always. Thanks for bringing it to us, Ben. You're welcome. Dinner show is something offbeat, and Bill, you've got something for us today. Yeah, we're going to be talking about lawyers behaving badly for the. It's one of your favorite things. Time. Sure. I think we get a door prize here <laughs> for, the, for the next couple. Uh, have you guys seen the film Weekend at Bernie's? Classic. M many times. It's many a good times. Sure. Good flick. Yes. Um, the the basic premise is that two 
young men uh, <laughs> discover, prime of their life <laughs> discover that their their boss who has invited them to a weekend in the Hamptons has uh, has died yes and he, then they yeah he also framed them for, for financial crime before he died but correct yes. we should have we should have talked about that on our movie show oh yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't even think about that but yes uh, and then they they go through a series of increasingly ridiculous circumstances to Hijinks. convince other people that he is still alive. Yeah, they they put the sunglasses on him. They yeah. walk around like with him draped over their yep. shoulders. This is why Weekend at Bernie's 2 is so bad, because he gets voodoo, and mm-hmm. so he's walking around by himself. Yeah, you know? it's not the and same. And it's just not the same. Anyway, that. so that's a very much a digression. Anyway. Why? What does that have to do? What in the world does that have to do with anything? I just wanted to know if you guys had seen it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Be- asked and answered. Yes. A pair of lawyers... Uh, are in are in quite hot water over a uh, something that reminded me of Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> um, uh, the Second Circuit issued a ruling this week that um, really tore into these two guys for failing to acknowledge the death of their client for nearly a year. A year? Okay. While his wow. case was pending before their court. Oh no! See, I, I, I was Ooh. like, well, you know, sometimes sometimes people die and. You know, I mean, I don't know why they're obligated to tell the court. Oh, he was litigating at the he time. He was. Oh, or, or they were litigating. It's even trickier than that. So this okay. guy, uh, Mark Marentet, sued uh, this city in upstate New York after he was fired as the fire chief over allegations of improper conduct. Um, uh, sadly, Marentet died the same day that a district court ruled on his case ruled against him. Tough day. Tough day. Jeez. <laughs> Tough day, for sure. Tough day for him and his family. So, of, you know, one would think that that would, um, you know, he himself would not be able to be the named appellant. Sure. sure. That did not stop his attorneys um, from appealing on his behalf to the Second Circuit. His lawyers, Michael T. Heron and Kevin W. Connell of Trevette, Christo Salzer, and Andalina P.C., Really rolls off the tongue. Uh, they filed an appeal with him as the named appellant, um, like nothing had happened at all. But there are mechanisms for Total, this kind I, of you, stuff. For sure. Like, took the words right can, out of my mouth. You can pretty regularly, <laughs> depending on the kind, yeah, depending on the kind of suit, yes. you can then name the family member that would be the beneficiary so, of the outcome, kind of thing. Amber, you know who brought <laughs> this, this, those, those very great points up? Oh, the judge. I hope their opposing counsel. Oh, the oh, counsel. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah, sure. About a month later, they noted. That the uh, the appellant had died, um, but Heron, Heron and Connell uh, persisted as if nothing had occurred. Okay, did they not? Well, wait a minute though. So, I, but but you said something about it, about it lasting more than a year. So I'll read the quote. Okay, just from the, right. from the yeah, opinion yeah, yeah. this week. All right. Quote: Inexplicably, <laughs> although defendants noticed Marintet's death on the record months before any briefing was due. Marintet's counsel still made no motion for substitution, nor did they mention the death in the opening brief. Oh, okay. Even after the defendants raised the issue again in the response brief and asked this court to dismiss the appeal on that basis, Marintet's counsel refused to acknowledge the problem in the reply brief. It was not until December 17, 2019, over 11 months after their client had died, two months after briefing was completed, and less than one month from the date scheduled for oral argument, that counsel first acknowledged Marintet's death and moved for the substitution of his ex-wife. You know, I understand why you brought up Wigan and Bernie's, because they also ignore every reasonable opportunity yes. to fess up. Yes. And so it's basically the same. Mm-hmm. I'm sympathetic. This is how I deal with, with problems all the time. Yep. I don't talk about them. I don't address them. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wait for them to go away. Mm-hmm. And then if someone if I if I back my if I find myself backed into a corner like these guys did, I go, Oh well, yeah, you guys didn't know that? Well, I, oh I, yeah! Great. Oh, I, I thought you. I thought you. I thought you all knew he was. Well, dead. we've all been talking about it. Oh, okay. Oh. My, all right. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
Is that oh. a problem? I mean, we can we can get his widow in here. This right is now. honestly so weird. You're the first person who's brought this up. To <laughs> <me>. <laughs> so the whole thing got a lot weirder. Later, they tried to switch the the plaintiff again from the ex-wife to the <laughs> daughter. Anyway, this week, as I mentioned, the court just tossed the whole thing out. Um, and as a kicker, referred Heron and Connell to the court's grievance panel, which is oh, sure. you know how you disciplinary uh, disciplinary yeah. stuff. Quote. We feel obliged to note our concern at what appears to be a lack of candor on the part of Marintet's counsel. I'd say so. Their failure to notify the court about Marintet's death for more than 11 months, <laughs> even after defendants repeatedly raised the issue, is inexcusable, as is their failure to timely move for substitution of a qualified representative. So, guys, I think the answer is in, you know, in life, if your boss dies, if you're an attorney and your client dies, just let people know. Sounds good. If Amber kicks the bucket, we will. I, the two of us, we must, we must promise this that we will not reanimate. Really glad her. there's not this a notification di- system for my death someday. This is yeah. it's great, guys. Can we? Can, anyway, can let's we get, get out of here. Let's get. We out. have to now. <laughs> yeah. uh, thanks for a good show. I think. Oh, uh, great! Wait, <laughs> that's a that's a great callback. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for being with me, Alex. I'll see you again next week. And Bill, have a good one. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Vin Guerreri, and contributing reporters, Mike Lasusa, Corey Atkinson, and Brian Koenig. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. If you like our show, we'd love it if you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find us. For more information about anything we've talked about, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.